Welcome to episode two of the second season of Create the Village. In this episode, we turn inward to examine the origins of the philosophy that undergirds our approach to its community development. Community development is not simply real estate development. Regardless of the city, regardless of the scope of the project, there are unique challenges when engaging in community development. But regardless of the complexities, there are always three critical priorities. Number one, to assess the condition of the neighborhood and to take the steps necessary to remove the dire and unjust stigma that afflicts that area in need of revitalization. Number two, to reposition the property for further and more comprehensive investment and development. And number three, and most importantly, to meet the housing needs of the families living in the affected neighborhood. When done correctly and completely, community development unlocks pent-up market forces and market dynamics to increase a neighborhood's inherent value. That is, to attract disposable income to sustain and build up the essential services that are typically present in a healthy and economically viable neighborhood. Services like retail, home ownership, market rate rental housing, workforce housing and affordable housing, commercial development, and all of the other complementary uses that we all know are essential. So listen in as we take a look at this approach in episode two of Create the Village. My name is Egbert Perry. I'm the CEO and founder of The Integral Group, a real estate company that focuses on creating value in cities and rebuilding the fabric of communities. This is Create the Village, a podcast about the intersection of public policy and community development. Each week, Egbert Perry and his longtime collaborator Rick White take a deep dive into one of the competing factors that determine the health of a community. Here's Rick White. So we're going to use this opportunity to talk a little bit about Integral, and we'll talk more about it, about the company later. But right now, tell us a story about the company, either a recent story, a story from the past that the listening audience should know in order to understand who and what Integral is. Allow me instead to just talk about, say something that led to how Integral was conceived, why, why Integral was created. From 1980 to 1992, I worked for a firm in Atlanta that was in the construction and real estate business doing a lot of construction, a lot of development, but in mainly in urban markets, so in cities. And over time, I got a chance to just see the set of conditions in a lot of urban communities that actually made no sense given all that urban environments had to offer in terms of infrastructure, amenities, and so on, yet there were people 
in pretty desperate situations. And, you know, I'm not naive, so I don't want to suggest that all of this was just so new or novel a recognition. But over time, after you hit with it, hit the images over and over and over again, year after year, you start developing a heightened awareness to the lack of opportunity that existed in a lot of these communities. And so the story I'm getting ready to say plays right into that. I had a meeting in New York and my closest friend who worked at the Bank of New York at the time, Clyde, picked me up and we were going to the meeting and we had time to kill because I got into JFK a little early. He decided after we got into the city that we were going to go there, but we we're going to drive through Harlem on the way to the east side of Manhattan where the meeting was to take place. And as we arrived in to our destination, which was the IBM building, there was a bench outside of the building that we were sitting on just chatting. And he said, okay, so tell me why that looked like that. And this is back in 1991 or so. Why does that look like that and this look like this? And what would it take to make that look like this? What, what were you looking at? What, essence, was the, what, what was the this and the that? Right. And, and in essence, what he was saying is the neighborhood we just drove through in Harlem and we drive through, we arrive on the east side of Manhattan. And so that's the this. because That's where we were at the time when he posed the question. What would it take to transform Harlem into the east side of Manhattan. Now, I'm not sure that's what you would want to do anyway, but my answer to him was, man, I have no idea, but what I could answer is, what would that community need to look like for me to say that's where I want to live? And I started talking, and I didn't realize it, but 15 minutes later, he stopped me and he said, okay, You've been talking extemporaneously with passion in answering my question. If you can do that so extemporaneously for so long with that much energy and passion, that's what you should be doing with your life. And I said instinctively, okay, I will do that if you will quit what you're doing and we'll both do it. And what I want to point out is I was not saying anything in those 15 minutes that I considered to be particularly insightful or grand from a vision standpoint. The truth is, in answering the question, I answered for him what the community that I grew up in in Antigua many years ago, back in the 50s and through the 60s, that Antigua was what I was describing. And that Antigua was independent of income, certain things were accessible. A decent education. We lived in a mixed income community. The adults were looking out for the young people and the systems and institutions were designed to help young people be successful. It was not race-driven, and no one was telling me I never was anything, am nothing, never will be anything. 
So I didn't have that kind of albatross thrown around my neck. I was describing a healthy, nurturing community. And I said, if you created that kind of community, you would create a place I would want to live in. That's really all I was doing when I described that. And Clyde, he was a lawyer and uh, an MBA trained individual. We both went to the same school. And I didn't go to law school. I went to engineering, but he was a lawyer and wrote very quickly, took out pen and pad and started writing. And when he was done, the notes that he made while I was answering his question ended up becoming the basis for creating Integral. In other words, we were going to be about creating healthy communities that did not discriminate against or along racial and economic lines and where you could create healthy environments for people to be nurtured. And that's how we started. So we started without using the words community development in that first conversation. We started with an eye towards creating solutions in underserved communities and transforming them into healthy, nurturing, mixed income communities. And, you know, I've heard you tell that story before, and it is, it, it, every time I hear it, it's actually, it continues to be inspiring. But I, I've never asked you this one question. What, why did you guys decide to travel through Harlem? What was, it you, what was the purpose of that? Actually, I have to give Clyde full credit for that decision. I actually didn't know where the hell I was, even though I had lived in New York. I finished my last two years of high school in New York. That's how I came to this country, was to finish my last two years of high school there. But I didn't have a car when I was there. And I, other than coming out at some subway stops a few times, I really didn't know the city all that well. He decided to do that. And I actually wish I could ask him, he is deceased now, has been for about four years. I never did ask him that, but that trip was more transformational for my life than anything else, not because of what I learned on the trip, but just him asking that question after that specific journey through Harlem and arriving on the east side of Manhattan. That is more important in defining how I ended up doing exactly what I'm doing, even though the heart and passion and so on was already there. The action of leaving what I was doing to start Integral specifically to get on this journey would not have happened, but for us making that trip through Harlem and him asking me that question at that time. Yeah, I was just wondering if it, it, and this would be speculation, of course, but I was wondering if it was, if it was about the history and, and, and the sense of community that, that Harlem has represented for decades. Oh, oh, I'm sure that he was making that trip. I mean, we've talked enough without me asking him specifically that question. I don't think he was thinking, let me take Egbert through this community and then pose this question to him. It was, 
Harlem was something that everyone should experience. I'd been to Harlem before, but everyone should experience. And it just seemed like, okay, this is a trip we should make. We should go that way. But I think after going through it, and I'm now speculating, he knew what Harlem was a generation ago and what Harlem had become by that time, by 1991, in terms of some of decline, the decline and disinvestment, that I'm sure he was asking the question almost like, why did it decline? What was going on? Why is it that? And then therefore, what would it take to make it something better? Now, what his something better was, was why, what would it take to make it the east side of Manhattan? And as I said earlier, I don't know that that's the answer for Harlem. That would not be, in my view, something you, one would aspire to convert Harlem into east side of Manhattan. But it certainly was signaling that he saw a need for it to be improved and what the measurement for improvement was may have been different, but that was, I'm sure, what drove him. And it was also about access to capital, right? It was just a very dramatic uh, example of one community that had access to capital and another that didn't. No question. I mean, and, and we know from being in the field for as long as we have, that that is absolutely fundamental. But I think it also has to do with how the market more broadly views the opportunity for investments made in certain kinds of communities. I mean, you know, I think to some of the early days of our work, you go to a market research consultant to give you a market study for a development that you're going to do in the hood or the neighborhood. You might as well make it up yourself because they have zero clue as to what that potential is. They, the way market analyses typically get done, you look at what rents are being charged in a neighborhood and you t look at all the comps and you then decide, yes, if you do this here, this is what you can charge as rents and so on. Well, none of that makes any sense. None of that is relevant if you're going to create an environment that does not currently exist and an environment that requires people to see it in a way they have never perceived that area. So there's no context in which to do the survey. So you are going to be creating a market that right now the marketplace doesn't think is a market. And when you're doing that, the obvious question is, who do you go to to tell you whether it will work and under what terms it would work, etc.? They're not the regular practitioners that can answer that question for you. It, it's like the, the, the market study that Steve Jobs did for the iPod, right? No, <laughs> right. No, nobody had ever thought about putting all of the, you know, hundreds of pieces of music onto a little credit card size piece of electronic until he did it. That's correct. Now and, that there is something, a lot of people can do analyses and, and make projections and so on, and they don't seem like just random thoughts pie in the sky because there is something you can point to that becomes a basis or standard from which to extrapolate. 
So just to go back a little bit. So when, when you and Clyde were sitting on that bench in the east side of New York, east side of Manhattan, um, you were there. This is when you were working for H.J. Russell. Is that right? That's correct. And so I think I have read someplace that you said that your time at Russell, and you were there for a number of years. I can't remember. Exactly. 13 years. 13 years. Um, um, you had described it as a great training ground for many of the things that you would do while identical group. What was it about your time at, at uh, Russell that, that made it such a great training ground? Uh, well, Russell was, it, it, it truly was that, and in large part because of the individual Herman Russell himself. Um, I was very young when I went there. I was a 24-year-old. I was assistant to the president. Um, I, I later figured out that I got that title because any job he gave me already fit in my job description so he wouldn't have to increase my pay if he gave me a new assignment because one could believe that it was already the responsibility of the president and therefore the assistant to the president. So, But that aside, it was a chance I had to grow a company which at the time was relatively small, especially in relation to the size of the individual himself, Herman Russell. And therefore, there was a chance to take a semi-blank sheet of paper and learn so many aspects of the business at the same time because I was not in a large organization where I could, I sat in a very small space and did the same thing over and over again. We literally were growing the business to scale in an environment where the field was still relatively wide open and I got to be a developer, a builder, a property manager, construction manager, got the chance to dabble in the communications field and so on and so on. I mean, a lot of different things. So it was truly an entrepreneurial environment and experience that I considered second to none. And it appealed to my impatience and my desire to do as much as I can in as short a period of time as possible. So for me, it was just fertile learning ground. And so you came in as a young 24-year-old assistant to the president making copies and stuff like that? or what, what, what uh, no, Not that kind of assistant to the president. I'll put it in perspective. Four months into it, H.J. Herman, I call him H.J., most people do. H.J. came in and asked in my office and said, okay, Egbert, I want you to do a business plan for the company. And I had no idea. I guess I looked at it as if I was in a Wharton classroom again, looking at it through the lens of finance and so on and so forth. And I put together a business plan that said that this company, which at the time was about 12 or so million a year in revenues, was going to be a billion dollar company 15 years later. I did the plan over a six month period because I remember giving it to him in October and he called me in his office. We chatted a couple of times and then in November, we had a long discussion about it. And he said, and by the way, my birthday is July. So by then I was 25. And he turned to me, November, he said, okay, first of next month, 
you're running the company. Now, at the time, what he really meant was I was running a construction company because that was the largest part of the business. And at 25, here I was trying to figure out, you have got to be kidding. So the first thought I had was, and I literally posed the question, running the company? Um, can you give me a job description for that? <laughs> and he looked at me, laughed, and he made one of his classic statements. Boy, you're a bigger fool than you look to be. And then he said, you really want a job description? Okay, I'm going to give you one, but I'm not writing down the damn thing. You're going to head up that company. You're going to run the company. Make sure you don't lose any of my damn money or it's your ass. That's the job description. And that was it. And that set me on a course. And literally, I had an opportunity, as I said earlier, to just make it up. Take a sheet of paper and just whatever it was. And it was great training to just create from scratch. Uh, wasn't quite scratch, but you get my point. And so when I left Russell, it was extremely hard. I had been there 13 years. I had hired hundreds of people. The company was now, uh, of course, the affiliates, about a $200 million a year company. So I had been there from, from low double digits to a couple hundred million and was an integral, no pun intended, an integral part of growing that company. I'd been the president. I was leaving on good ground, but I left literally to do what Clyde and I discussed. So it was more driven by a passion to do something than leaving for some other reason. And so um, I think I heard you give a speech a few years ago where you uh, shared this, shared a similar story about your time. And if I remember correctly, your speech was really emphasizing what it was like to transition out and to, to, to start Integral. And I remember you said something along the lines of, okay, how am I going to make a difference? How am I going to make an impact yeah. in starting Integral? So we'll talk a little bit about why creating an impact was a challenge that you decided to set for yourself and for the company? You know, um, I was, I am first and foremost a citizen of the world. As, as, I, as I indicated, I was born, I wasn't born here, I was born in Antigua. There was a way I thought, I owed Antigua a lot. I happened to, be, to have been born on a paradise on earth with great parents and who, despite low economics, had all of their children, all 11 of us or 10, one died early, have a chance to, on a, an income of about $1,000 US a year, be able to go to the best school on the island, get a great education, have all the opportunity in life because there were not as many things telling us that we could not. And it seemed to me that inside of me, I was my father's child. And even though my father and mother were both driven 
to push us all towards getting a great education and charting our own course and so on. And I never understood that because neither one of them was well-educated, but maybe that's why. I, I always despaired when I looked at how many people living in communities and people that look like me that were sentenced before they ever left the womb and were going to have a negative or a negative slope to their life trajectory, all because of race. And I was determined over time, the energy and passion built around addressing that. And so I think the move to create Integral was actually just the cumulative effect of seeing that, being frustrated by what I saw, feeling that I was in a position to bring certain skill sets to the table to help change that. And so when we started Integral, Clyde and I said we were going to transform urban America. Of course, we failed to understand the magnitude or scale of the problem and all that was organized, intentionally or not, organized to its ensuring that urban America, if you define urban for a moment as being black and brown, how all these forces were organized that helped to make it what I was seeing every day. And that you were going to have to take on a lot of things if you really wanted to be, to be transformational in that space. So in that regard, impact means something other than being a good business person. It means something other than being a good developer. It means having a social impact. Absolutely. I, our mantra, which we came up with almost immediately, was we were going to do well while doing good. Most people look for ways to do good while they're doing well, or they do well and then they decide, just as they're getting close to meeting their maker, that they want to do some good and they want to show that they did some good while they were on earth. Clyde and I said, we were going to try and do good while we were young. We just needed to do it in a way that we would also do well, as in pay our bills and, and live a decent life. And therefore, we needed to come to the table embracing the fact that there is a for-profit way in which you can do business um, in the community development space but we would never lose sight of the fact that the metrics we wanted to measure our performance by had to have both social, well, not just both, let's say social, uh, economic, and physical consequences to it. So we had to measure along multiple lines. If we weren't addressing things in a way that were economically sustainable, then the situation won't persist. The positive outcomes won't persist. If we weren't doing it in a way that helped people and transformed opportunities for people, then we might as well have just been like everybody else and taken the degrees we have and the access that it afforded us and gone off and just made some money. And then when we're old and gray and ready to check out, throw some money around and say, look, we did some good things. That wasn't who we were. So there are a lot of ways 
one can do good. And I'm not knocking one path over the other. We just chose this path. God knows I've thought many times over, maybe if I'd made a lot more money um, by going down a different route, that today I would have more money to throw around doing some of the things I want to do. Now, I wouldn't be as informed, aware, experienced, and educated in the field about what it takes to drive responsible and effective community development. And so I would be looking to give that money to other people so they can carry out that task. Right now, I can do the combination. I can do the work myself, as in through the organization integral, and at the same time, support other initiatives that complement the work that we do. Well, I'll, I'll throw you a softball here at the end of this, uh, this session, but had, you, had the two of you not decided to take the path that you took and cut your own way, because I think you would agree that this really sets you, sets it integral apart in terms of its philosophy and business model from certainly back in the early 90s from most other companies. Had you not decided to do that, while you may have a whole lot more money today than you have access to, there wouldn't be the type of development going on in cities across America the way that we see it today. You wouldn't, you would have probably continued to see the suburbanization of America versus the urbanization of America. Would you agree with that? Uh, yeah, at a level, I would, I would agree with that. I always tend to be hesitant to take too much credit. And some people will say, and therefore, Egbert, you don't take enough credit. Um, there's no question that we, as an integral and a partner of ours, developed what became the legal, regulatory, and financial model to create mixed income communities. And but for our early work, most of what gets thrown around today as just mixed income communities would not exist. We, we created the first fully transformational model where we transformed the nation's first public housing project, Techwood Homes, and assisted development next to it, Clark Howell Homes, a 60-acre site into a holistic community revitalization project, which people around the country are copying today. And as Secretary Henry Cisneros, the ex-Secretary of HUD said, at the time of our 25th anniversary as a company, all of it became the model and 254 public housing developments across America have been redone on that model because of the start that we got here. True story. That was telling for me. I didn't realize the magnitude of the work. I know that we had done a lot of good things in the field of community development, but that was a, a highlight hearing him say that. So yeah, there's no question that a lot of what people do, and you can take right here in Atlanta, everybody talks about mixed income housing and have no idea how this was never in the lexicon until we created that first mixed income housing development here. And now it's all over the country. Create the Village is produced by Rick White. 
directed and edited by Brennan Robinson. Create the Village is a production of The Integral Group, LLC. Copyright The Integral Group, 2020.